Hello, and welcome to this short lecture on verse and prose in fantasy literature. I'm Catherine Olley, I'm a junior research fellow in medieval studies here at Oxford, um, and in this video I'm going to look at one particular way in which fantasy literature draws on medieval inspirations. We're all quite familiar with the idea that a lot of the content of fantasy literature is ultimately derived from medieval myth and legend. But what may be less widely known is how far the narrative form and structure of fantasy also owes a great debt to a popular ancient and medieval literary form. One of the more singular features of fantasy literature is the way it occasionally intersperses prose narration with poetry, a form of writing known as prosimetrum. Tolkien includes numerous poems and poetic extracts amid the otherwise predominantly prose narratives of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Readers of Brian Jake's Redwall series may remember his frequent forays into poetry, from comic ballads to rousing sea shanties to riddles which the characters had to solve. Prosimetrum is so characteristic of the fantasy genre, in fact, that it can be used to set up reader expectations. In Guy Gabriel Kay's trilogy, The Fianarva Tapestry, five postgraduate students at the Second International Celtic Conference in Toronto are magically transported from our world to Fianarva, the first of all worlds. Upon arrival in Fianarva, appearing in what Kay describes as a small, dimly lit room somewhere high up, they hear the sounds of singing, or as he says, the unsteady caroling of someone coming down the hallway towards them, someone far gone in drink. Those who rode that night with Rever did a deed to last forever. The weaver cut from brighter cloth, those who rode through Daniloth. Without even having his characters leave the room, where they have appeared suddenly in this new land, Kay clearly signposts to his readers a major shift in setting and tone. We have travelled from the familiarity of Toronto, where our main characters were beset by ordinary concerns, such as worries about exam revision, to the kind of place where heroic rides are immortalised in verse, a place of unknown but evidently noble history, and of unfamiliar names and beliefs, Daniloth, Rever, the Weaver. In short, the verse demonstrates that we are now in a recognisably fantasy space, with all the narrative expectations that that entails. Although not widely used in modern English writing, prosimetrum was extremely common in ancient and medieval literature, both in Europe and beyond. Um, the Sanskrit epic, the Mahabharata, um, classical Menippian satire, Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy, the Arabic Sira or epic narratives, the Old French Aucassin Nicolette, the Old Norse Sagas, the Old Irish Toyn, Dante's Vita Nuova, Mechthild of Magdeburger's Fließendes Licht der Gottheit, to name just a few. Prose and metrical texts survive in a huge array of languages and remained popular for centuries, from ancient times right up until the rise of the novel in the early modern period. Why then has prosimetrum endured in fantasy literature when it has almost completely died out elsewhere? Well, one obvious answer is that fantasy literature finds much of its inspiration in the prosimetrical literature of the ancient and medieval period. Imitating this art form lends fantasy literature an air of authority and authenticity. 
there's something of an irony in using prosimetrum this way, since poetry was often cited by medieval authors to lend authority to their narrative, sort of like an early form of source referencing. And thus the prosimetrical form actually arises in part because of a desire for an authoritative narrative voice. Prosimetrum in fantasy is not just a method of archaizing these stories, however. Poetic quotations often cluster around moments of particular narrative significance, allowing authors to linger at a moment of extreme tension or emotional impact. In the lengthy and often complex novels which are typical of the fantasy genre, structure is more important than ever. Intricate plots can become too involved, unfamiliar fantasy names can become confusing if a book is not well structured. Embedding poetry into a narrative at critical points makes these points memorable by allowing for a change in register. Usually it has to be said into a more melancholic or portentous key. Tolkien, for example, lingers over the death of Boromir as Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli sing a lament before they send his body over the falls of Rauros. And I'll read you just the end of it. His head so proud, his face so fair, his limbs they lay to rest, and Rauros, golden Rauros falls, bore him upon its breast. O Boromir, the tower guard shall ever northward gaze, to Rauros, golden Rauros falls, until the end of days. And Guy Gabriel Kay uses poetry in quite a similar fashion at the end of his novel, The Lions of Alrassan. The final form of the kingdoms of Algassan is lamented in a verse. And again, I'll just read you the end of it. The wells and the fountains weep for sorrow, as a lover does when dawn comes to take him away from his desire. They mourn for the passing of lions, for the ending of Alrassan the beloved, which is gone. Breaking into poetry here heightens the pathos of the moment, it sharpens the emotional impact, and it allows Kay to impart a sense of closure. The poem is all about an ending. On one level, it's about the ending of the fictional kingdom of Al-Rasan, but on another, it's drawing the book itself to a close. Thus, the conclusion of the novel's themes is conveyed not just in content, but also in form. It's not just what Kay writes, but how he writes it. But most importantly, I think, embedding poetry within prose in fantasy writing has been so successful because these prosimetrical episodes are highly multifunctional, while remaining, at the same time, stylistically elegant. World building is a key component of fantasy literature. We judge authors on the skill with which they conjure up new civilizations and peoples for us to explore. But we do not want to feel like we are reading an encyclopedia. A deft author can use a verse quotation to subtly inform us about character and emotion, to educate us about a world's history and culture, and to situate us in a particular atmosphere or temporal setting. Take, for example, this speech by Sam in Lord of the Rings, chapter 11, when the hobbits and Strider are camping at Weathertop, and they're discussing its old function as a watchtower, from which the men of old looked for the coming of Gilgalad from the west to help them fight the darkness. And at this point, Sam rather unexpectedly breaks into poetry, and he recites, Gilgalad was an elven king, 
Of him the harpers sadly sing, the last whose realm was fair and free between the mountains and the sea. But long ago he rode away, and where he dwelleth none can say, for into darkness fell his star, in Mordor where the shadows are. The scene deepens our understanding of Sam's character, evidencing his particular fascination with the elves, which is what prompted him to learn these verses. And yet, as he tells his astonished friends, he did not memorise the remainder of the poem, further emphasising that Sam is really more of a practical rather than a sort of bookish hobbit. And Strider informs us that the verses are actually a translation by Bilbo of an older elvish lay, so its use of syllabic metre and rhyme is thus also culturally characteristic, and it contrasts with the stress-based alliterative verse of Rohan. And finally, the subject matter, by remembering a distant and legendary past, establishes a sense of historical depth, and contributes to a growing sense of dread regarding the shadow of Mordor, even at this very early stage in the narrative. And all of this from a scene of perhaps a few hundred words. Tolkien's interweaving of verse and prose in his Lord of the Rings is worthy of a lecture in itself, but here I want to highlight just one particular way in which he utilises the frequent shifts he makes between prose and poetry. One of the most striking aspects of the Lord of the Rings is the tone of the narrative, the way in which Tolkien is able to situate his readers in a world that feels both indescribably ancient and yet has a historical and legendary depth of its own. Quote, that sense of perspective, of antiquity with a greater and yet darker antiquity behind. Now those are Tolkien's own words, but he was not talking about the Lord of the Rings, he was actually talking about Beowulf, and that poet's brilliant evocation of the many layers of historical time. Now Tolkien evidently admired what the Beowulf poet achieved in that regard, because he clearly tries to replicate it in his own work. And prosimetrum is the essential strategy used by Tolkien to conjure up that same sense of perspective in his own fantasy writing. He uses poetic quotations and the framing prose to look back in time. Consider one of his most celebrated passages. Um, where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Where is the helm and the hauberk? and the bright hair flowing. And I won't read all of it, but skip to the end. Who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning, or behold the flowing years from the sea returning? And then we switch into prose. Thus spoke a forgotten poet long ago in Rohan, recalling how tall and fair was Eol the young, who rode down out of the north, and there were wings upon the feet of his steed, Falaroth, father of horses. So men still sing in the evening. The episode helps to introduce the civilization of Rohan, establishing its antiquity and its nobility, and most importantly, perhaps, with the dominant use of the ubisunt, the, the where are motif, um, a sense of its current decline under the failing rule of the bewitched King Theoden. But Tolkien doesn't just use poetry to add historical depth to his world. He also uses poetry to look forward in time and thereby situate his own present narrative in the historical past. After the Battle of Pelennor Fields, he takes a moment to review the slain. 
So we're told no few had fallen, renowned or nameless, captain or soldier. For it was a great battle, and the full count of it no tale has told. So long afterward, a maker in Rohan said in his song of the mounds of Mundberg, We heard of the horns in the hills ringing, the swords shining in the south kingdom. Steeds went striding to Stonyland, as wind in the morning. War was kindled. There Theoden fell, Thengling mighty. And so it goes on, becoming a catalogue of the names of those who have fallen. And this allusion to songmakers in Rohan long afterwards pushes us as readers forward into the future, a reminder that the heroes of The Lord of the Rings will themselves pass into legend. Tolkien actually uses his poetry to look even further forward than that. It's sometimes forgotten, I think, that The Lord of the Rings takes place in our own world, a conceit that's much more apparent in the early part of the novel, especially the prologue, than in the latter sections. But at the Prancing Pony in Bree, Frodo sings a song that Bilbo wrote about the man in the moon who came down to earth to drink some beer and ended up drinking the whole night away. Only a few words of this song, we are told, quote, are now, as a rule, remembered. And I'll read you just the final two verses because it's a very long song, but I think that you'll find them familiar. So the poem ends. With a ping and a pong, the fiddle strings broke. The cow jumped over the moon. And the little dog laughed to see such fun. And the Saturday dish went off at a run with the silver Sunday spoon. The round moon rolled behind the hill as the sun raised up her head. She hardly believed her fiery eyes, for though it was day, to her surprise, they all went back to bed. The allusion, of course, is to the nursery rhyme Hadil Dill for which Tolkien has invented an entire explanatory backstory. But the episode is an intriguing bridge between the world of the reader and the world of the novel, suggesting for a moment a continuity of being, a line that can be traced from ourselves in the present all the way to the inn of the Prancing Pony. If we remember those few words of which Tolkien as narrator speaks, we are for a moment ourselves a part of the narrative. The scene enhances the realism of the narrative by connecting it to our own reality. If we are real and we are drawn into the narrative, then that same narrative is invested with the realism of our own existence. And fantasy, perhaps more than other literary genres, needs to feel real, to be taken seriously. Stories which include consciously fantastical elements need to work extra hard to integrate them into a narrative, to make them believable and to make them relatable. In a similar fashion, Guy Gabriel Kay also uses poetry to provide a bridge between the familiar world of the reader, a world that in this case is shared with his main characters who come from Toronto, and the magical world of Fianava. A main theme in the first book of his Fianava trilogy is the way his characters Kevin and Paul process their grief for the death of their friend Rachel in a car accident before the novel starts. And it eventually leads Paul to an act of self-sacrifice on the summer tree. But Kevin deals with his grief in a different way. Late one night in a tavern, where he has been taken by some of his new friends from Fianava, he performs Rachel's Song, which is an adapted version of the second movement of the Brahms F major cello sonata. And the song is an explicit lament for Rachel. And I'll just read you again the beginning. Love 
Do you remember my name? I was lost in summer turned winter, made bitter by frost. And when June comes December, the heart pays the cost. The breaking of waves on a long shore, in the grey morning the slow fall of rain, and stone lies over. Although very different in tone to the song quoted when the characters first arrive in Fianava, that song about those who row that night with Revel, uh, much more similar in fact to a modern love song really than an ancient ballad, the song nevertheless sets up music as a kind of universal language, something that both those characters from Toronto and those from Fianava have in common. Where Kay's earlier shift into poetry emphasised all that was unfamiliar about Fianava as a distant and magical land, Kay now uses poetry to highlight what is similar, to begin breaking down the boundaries between worlds and to show that what happens in one world can have consequences in another. And that's really all I've got time for in this short lecture, but I want to end with the big question. Is the golden age of prose and metrum in fantasy literature over? Should we now resign ourselves to more prosaic narratives in the literal sense of the word? It's undeniable that prose and metrum has fallen out of fashion, I think, lingering on mainly in the form of prophecies, magic speech, which is often still rendered in poetic form to highlight its portentous nature. It's a sort of subtle coding, but one that we all instinctively understand. However, the impulse to turn to verse at moments of particularly high drama still remains. Consider the Song of Fire and Ice by George R. R. Martin, perhaps the most major fantasy series of recent time. Arguably, the most famous moment of the whole series is the Red Wedding, when, and this is a huge spoiler alert, so please stop listening now if you've not read it, um, when the valiant Rob Stark is brutally betrayed and murdered at the wedding of his uncle, Edmure Tully. And the scene is told to us from the perspective of Rob's mother, Kathleen, and I just want to read you a short extract. The players in the gallery had finally gotten both king and queen down to their name day suits. With scarcely a moment's respite, they began to play a very different sort of song. No one sang the words but Catelyn knew the reins of Castamere when she heard it. Edwin was hurrying toward a door. She hurried faster, driven by the music. Six quick strides, and she caught him. And who are you? The proud lord said, that I must bow so low. She grabbed Edwin by the arm to turn him, and went cold all over when she felt the iron rings beneath his silken sleeve. The critical moment of realisation is interrupted by the ominous words of the song, Who are you, the proud Lord said, that I must bow so low? It's a final moment of quiet before the chaos and the slaughter erupts. The moment is particularly well rendered in the HBO show, where that juxtaposition of the music and the murder is even more pronounced because we get to hear much more of the song than we do in the book. So given the success of that scene, it's not surprising that the showmakers reached for the same technique in season 8, when they reached a similarly dramatic moment the night before the final battle with the seemingly unbeatable Night King. 
Who can say how the story will unfold in Martin's version, but the showmakers have Podrick Payne sing Jenny of Old Stones, an old and very sad folk song of the Seven Kingdoms, while the camera pans over the surviving characters to show how they choose to spend what may very well be the last night of their lives. And the words go like this, high in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts. The ones she had lost, and the ones she had found, and the ones who had loved her the most. And she never wanted to leave, never wanted to leave. The lyrics, redolent as they are of loss and death, have clearly been written for their multivalence. They are not just a reflection of Jenny's situation, but of the situation of everybody waiting at Winterfell. In these two moments of extremely high drama, Martin and his show creators, Benioff and Weiss, reach for a familiar tactic. They employ verse to create an atmosphere that cannot easily be created by simple narration or by means of direct speech between characters. Verse provides a much more subtle and implicit means of conveying tone and meaning to an audience whether that be the sense of ominous threat at the Red Wedding, or of preemptive grief the night before the Night King's attack. Martin, Benioff and Weiss are not alone in using verse this way. Who was able to watch the Netflix series The Witcher without coming away humming the song Toss a Coin to Your Witcher, a song which again works to establish the character and drives of the series protagonist, the Witcher of the show's title. I think as fantasy adaptations increase, we may well see the resurgence of prosimetrum, not perhaps in the written form, which may never return to quite the kind of popularity it once enjoyed, but as a performative technique, as effective now as it was hundreds of years ago, as a way to structure dramatic and spoken storytelling, oscillation between verse and prose still has a long and dynamic future. Thank you.